good? Lita Cows are a wonderful family. Please keep praying for, uh, for Addison. So what happens when you forget your past? You forget all about it. You forget everything that happened. The good, the bad, the ugly. You just forget all of it. I was reading uh, this past week about a couple of amnesia patients named Peter and Marcus. And they had some interesting things to share about what it was like forgetting everything. <clears throat> Excuse me, forgetting everything. One of them said my memory of my past is just a blank space. He said I feel lost and hopeless. He, he says I'm like trying to explore a void. And both described how hard it is to look at photographs of them in the past. They said it's like looking at the biography of somebody else and trying to understand what happened. Conscious of recent memories slipping away from them like ships, they said, sailing out to sea in the fog, never to be seen again. As I read through this, there were two things that stood out about the stories of these, men, <clears throat> these patients. One of them said, it's hard to cling to an identity. I don't have the moorings that other people draw on to know who they are. And then secondly, it's hard to have hope when we don't know our past. With hope, see, comes the expectation of things getting better. But if you don't know your past, how will you know from whence things will be getting better? Remembering is essential also in our approach to living out our Christian faith. Remembering what we believe and when we take communion, we call it communion, that has to do with community, us having community with each other and, and community with God. Sometimes we'll call it the Lord's Supper. It gives us these spiritual moorings. It connects us to a past event that happened. It gives us even the ability to imagine a future, which is what these men said they were missing. It gives us the ability to imagine a future because it's a picture of us taking a meal together with God and those who have passed away before us, who are in heaven now waiting on us. We'll be fellowshipping and dining with God for eternity. But I also have a fear when it comes to communion. I fear that it becomes one of those things that's just sort of rote and commonplace. Something, frankly, that's easy to forget, something that you just go through the motions with, and it feels even sort of like a tacked-on event at the end of worship once a month. You know, we do that thing, it's the beginning of the month. And it led me to explore a question. I th started thinking, what if we never took communion again at First Baptist Church? What if we just decided, you know, we're not going to do it anymore? Now, just to be clear, we're not going to do that. Um, and the title of the sermon is, is communion all that important? I'll give you a hint. The answer is yes. But why? What would we expect if we never took communion again? What would happen if we just decided not to do it anymore? That's what I want to talk about this morning. We'll be looking at a couple of different passages. We'll be in the book of 1 Corinthians. We'll be taking a break from the book of John. And this morning I want to read two passages. First is from 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 
We'll start with verses 16 through 18. 1 Corinthians 10, then we'll take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 29. If you would please stand with me for the reading of these verses. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, starting at verse 16. Then we'll be in chapter 11, starting at verse 23. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel, are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? Then moving on to chapter 11, starting at verse 23. <clears throat> for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. You may be seated. So again, we're talking about the act of communion. The word itself again comes from the word community. We have community with each other. We have community with God. There's a horizontal aspect. There's a, a vertical aspect whenever we're taking communion. And I want to explore this idea as we take a pause from the book of John to ask, what would it mean to neglect taking communion? And I believe there's three consequences that come from this passage if we were to stop taking communion. Now, this isn't all negative, just to be clear. I believe that contrast brings clarity. So as we look at the consequences, we will also see, well, these are the benefits of taking communion. This is why we do it. So let's start out then with this first consequence. First would be, and it's kind of two wrapped into one, but you see there, they really come together. We could expect if we neglected to take communion to be spiritually malnourished and disunified. Spiritually malnourished and disunified. So let's take again uh, a look again at this passage, starting at 1 Corinthians 10. Look what it says. The cup of blessing that we bless. And look at that word that keeps popping up. <clears throat> is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break is not a participation in the body of Christ. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices, participants in the altar. Now let's think about this for a moment. There's a key word that keeps popping up. It's this word participation. Participating, participation. What's that mean? Well, we have to go into the context of who Paul is writing to here. Paul's writing to a church in a place called Corinth, and it had problems. They were disunified. They had a problem with idolatry. And Paul is teaching them, look, communion is a picture. As a matter of fact, it raises to the surface the problem you have with idolatry. 
It's incompatible. Even as I explain communion to you, you'll see that your idolatry is not compatible with what you're professing to believe. So look at verse 16. Paul's talking about this cup of blessing, blessing, a, a cup of blessing. It was Now, what does that mean? Well, this was a common uh, practice for Jews that the last cup of wine at a dinner was called the cup of blessing. It was almost like a, a, a toast to God. And this took on new meaning after the Last Supper. When Jesus raised this last cup, this was the new cup of blessing. And we thank him for this cup of blessing. That's why in the, in, in the sense that we bless the cup of blessing, that's what he's talking about there, because of what it symbolizes. The shed blood of Christ allows us to participate in the promises that God has given us. Because we have put our faith in Christ, because we've trusted Him, we now get to share in these promises. We receive forgiveness. We have eternal life. We're bonded together by the Holy Spirit Himself. We're unified in Him. So there's this sharing in the benefits and this, this participation. Well, participation goes even further than that. And verse 18 helps understand this. Because if you look at verse 18, it looks back at the people of Israel. When the people of Israel would offer a sacrifice, when they would come and they would offer a sacrifice on the altar, it was burnt. But it wasn't just burnt. It was also consumed. They cooked it. They ate it. So this sacrifice was a, a means of showing obedience to God. It was about a restored relationship to God. They would offer sacrifices acknowledging that the relationship was broken. That happened way back in the, in the garden. It was a breaking in the relationship between God and man. And from then on, sacrifices were offered to God. And this helped mend the relationship, but it took the shedding of blood for this, this relationship to get put right. And none of these sacrifices were fully sufficient. The only fully sufficient sacrifice would be the sacrifice of God himself. It would be the only perfect sacrifice. But there was a physical act, and don't miss this, there was a physical act to be performed out of obedience. And what does the share, participant, partner in the altar mean? It means that they are sharing in or benefiting from what happened on the altar. On that altar of sacrifice, they are now becoming participants in that they are consuming what was just offered. This is what Jesus is pointing out. This was a picture of solidarity, solidarity with God. And therefore, it's also a means, and I want to be very careful... It provides spiritual nourishment, not because it's magic or mystical. And I'll say this a few times. The key ingredient is faith when we take communion. There's nothing mystical or magical in the elements themselves such that when you consume it, it does something special. However, it is because you are in faith acting in obedience to God and this physical act He's giving you to do. You become a participant in it. And it is this picture of solidarity with God. And not only could we expect to be malnourished if we neglected to take communion, we could also expect to have a degree of disunity. 
Look at verse 17. It says, because there was one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Now, whenever these early believers would take communion, they would take it from a single loaf. They would be one loaf of bread. They'd all break a piece of it off. Not just a, you know, a tiny square from an individually wrapped package that we get today. This was different. So this gets a bit lost on us. What Paul's saying is the fact that everyone was eating from one loaf, and that was a symbol of their solidarity together. Again, there's a vertical aspect here. And there's a horizontal aspect, that we're all eating from this one loaf. We have a common confession. This is a picture of the belief and the faith that we all share in the same God. Now, the problem with this church is not only were they eating their, their own food, but they were even getting drunk. Now, this is, this is where it gets real weird. <clears throat> For the church in Corinth, they'd actually turned the thing into a meal. So imagine that you got to think of it like this. For them... Communion had turned it into a self-serve potluck. Kind of like we had a picnic after church one Sunday. But we all filed through a line. We all had something to eat and, and, and all that. That's not the way it was here. It was like you brought your own food to this potluck, and some had food and some didn't. And some had wine that they would overindulge in. In other words, it was haphazard. It was self-serving, and they had idolized themselves, and they were divided, and they were not unified in the manner in which they took communion. By the way, this is why we pause. This is why we all take it together. If you ever wondered why, well, why is someone up here speaking a particular verse, and then we all take it at the same time, this is why. This is all a picture of unity, that we are unified. That we are taking the same thing at the same time. It's a picture of having the same belief. So it's a means of both receiving spiritual nourishment by faith and symbolizing the unity we have as believers. And again, faith is the essential ingredient. It's not about the mere eating and drinking because, see, unbelievers can go through all those motions. Unbelievers can eat, and unbelievers can drink just, just like we would. But we see, receive nourishment through faith. And I love what John Piper says about this. He said, Do we not at the Lord's table feast spiritually by faith on every spiritual blessing bought by the body and blood of Christ? No unbeliever can do that. The devil can't do it. It is a gift for the family. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we feast spiritually by faith on all the promises of God bought by the blood of Jesus. <clears throat> so if you didn't take communion, if we weren't taking it, there would be something seriously missing in your spiritual life. And by the way, when you neglect one part of your life, it's going to neglect the others. It'll affect you emotionally. It'll affect you physically. Because we are whole beings. We aren't subdivided up into small categories. So we participate in this physical reminder that He's given us 
that is happening in real time. And it's, it's mysterious what happens when we take communion together. You know, it's a physical picture of a faith and a trust that we have in Him. So instead of being spiritually malnourished and suffering from disunity, we receive spiritual nourishment through faith during communion, doing it together as a picture of the unity of the faith that we have. Is that clear? Just tell me yes. Okay. We can talk later if I need to clear something up. There's a second consequence that would be expected if we neglected communion, and that would be the forgetfulness of Christ's work. The forgetfulness of Christ's work. Look again at uh, verses 23 through 26. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So first of all, notice what verses 24 and 25 say. Do this in remembrance of me. We've got it on the table in front of you as a matter of fact. So in addition to that physical act of taking communion and the spiritual nourishment it provides through faith, we've got a mental act involved in communion as well. It's, It's physical, but it's also mental. This act of remembrance. Well, what does that mean? Here's one of the biggest differences between Christianity and every other faith is that we are doing something that recalls a historical reality. This separates it from Mormonism, this separates it from Islam, this separates it from from other faiths is is this actual event of Christ being crucified and resurrected, resurrected. It is a historical reality. And it's rooted in a historical truth. So this is a commemoration. And we consciously call to mind the act of dying that Christ went through. He explains there in verse 26, when we do this, when we take communion, we're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. We're saying we believe, when we take communion, we're saying we believe that it actually happened. We're reminding ourselves of the physical act. You know, it's just like if you ever go to the East Coast and you drive up and down through Maryland and and Virginia and West Virginia and and the Carolinas, what you see all over the place are these brown signs. As a matter of fact, I know many kids who would sigh when their dad would pull up to another historical marker. No, kids, you need to know this. (laughs) But those are set there to commemorate something that actually happened on that spot. There's where it happened. There's the marker. I know they have them around Wyoming as well. I just haven't traveled enough to see those signs. They commemorate something. A marker was set. The event happened, and the communion marks an event that happened. And Christians, you know what? We don't go on an annual pilgrimage. The Jews went on an annual pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. Muslims go on an annual pilgrimage. Uh, pilgrimage to Mecca. We don't go on an annual pilgrimage. Instead, periodically, we do it monthly. Scriptures don't necessarily say how often you do it. We sit here to commemorate something that happened. 
So the question is, are you mentally present during communion? Now, this is interesting. I was, I was reading about the nature of how we eat meals today because it's changed. And some 66% of Americans eat dinner while they're watching TV. And because, and I get it, you know, whenever I'm uh, working, I, what I'll often do is I'll go get a fish sandwich at McDonald's and I eat it on the way back to the office. We typically do meals while we're doing something else, and that has an interesting impact on our bodies. One, we tend to eat more than we need to. And secondly, because we aren't thinking about the food, it has a more of a bland taste. And because of that, we want more salt and sugar on our meals because we're actually more distracted while we're eating. Now, there's a, there's a correlation here. And could that same principle apply to how we celebrate the Lord's Supper? Do we get distracted? Is our celebration of Christ bland and commonplace because we're trying to multitask while we're in worship? So, we do this to remember there's also spiritual nourishment and, and unity happening in communion. And I want to talk about this third consequence of not taking communion. And that is an unexamined life. An unexamined life. What's going on here? Let's look at uh, verses 27 through 29. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body of and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So what's going on here? What is this, this unworthy way that we're, we're talking about? And, and remember, you've got to keep the passage in the context that it was written. I often say, if you want to understand the Bible, you've got to get into the shoes of the original hearers, the original audience. So you've got this group, we've talked about a little bit already, uh, this group in Corinth who's got some problems. And we get some explanation if we go back to verse 20 of chapter 11. Because Paul was saying this to them as well. When you come together, he's chastising this, this group of um, Corinthians. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry. Another gets drunk. This is bad. This is like getting drunk at a church picnic, okay? What? What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you with this? No, I will not. So you've got this group of people in Corinth. You've got the haves. They've got the good wine. They've got the good food. They're getting together. They're eating a big meal right in front of another group of people, the have-nots, who basically have nothing. And it had gotten, again, so bad that the wealthy were drunk. I mean, that's bad, you know. And when God's people become divided when they gather together, it just flies directly in the face of the gospel. And and again, the root word here is communion. It's unity. It's where we get community. And this did not go unnoticed by the Lord. 
And Paul goes on to say to these folks in Corinth that they've fallen under God's judgment because of how they've been doing communion. Now, that's what he's talking about when you, you come under judgment in doing this. He's not saying you're going to hell. But there is a, a chest, there, there's a discipline that goes on here from God because of what they're doing and how they're doing it. And I hope all of us can see of this passage, there is a gravity and a weightiness to the act of communion. It's not like you and your family hitting Perkins on the way home. This is different. And what we're doing is, is different. And there's something special that happens. And, it, and notice this judgment wasn't because of the music or the sermon or the evening programs of the church. And how the people were participating in their manner in those activities, he's calling it specifically, calling attention specifically to communion here. And now notice, nowhere in the passage, Paul condemns the affluent crowd for being affluent. That wasn't the problem. It wasn't because they were rich. It wasn't because they were wealthy. As a matter of fact, he'll, he simply says down in uh, verse 34, if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give you directions when I come. The problem was they're dragging their own meals and eating in front of those who had nothing. So divisions were created among the people in the church. Now, for the most part, we've taken care of the problems the Corinthians have. And how we distribute communion, we make sure we all do it together uh, at the same time, the same meal. But I want you to see that is not, pay attention, that is not for no reason. There is intentionality in how we carry out the act of communion because we don't want to do what these folks at the church in Corinth were doing. We don't want to make their mistakes. So this unworthy manner in which the Corinthians were taking communion, for the most part, has, has been taken care of. But it does force us to ask ourselves, do we have divisions among us? You see, if there are divisions among us, it means we are meeting for some other reason than under the banner of Christ. And if, if this were just a group of people that met because we had the same affinities, I mean, there's other groups in town for that. There's clubs and there's conventions and there's interests. Of course, we'd have to take church off the sign as you're driving in. We'd be something else. Maybe a club. So we need to reflect on how we treat others and primarily asking yourself the question, do I have a concern for others here at our church, the disadvantaged, those whom I may disagree with? And it's important that we have this attitude of examination. Now, be careful when you, some of us carry a guilt complex. In other words, if, you were to, if I were to ask you, do you feel worthy today to take communion? You'd be like, well, I never feel worthy. Well, that's not what Paul's talking about. He's not talking about how you feel. Remember, he's specifically talking about the manner in which they were taking communion. That was a problem. He's not saying, do you have a worthy character today to do this? Remember, Christ is the one who made us worthy. But it does call into question this, your attitude. And are you willing to look at yourself? Is there a willingness there? How do you treat others? Is there a contempt? 
And if there is, repent. Instead of unexamined lives, communion challenges us to take it with an attitude of examining yourself. So to put all this together, take communion to celebrate the worthiness Christ has given you. It is a celebration. It is commemorating what Christ has done. It is spiritual nourishment by faith. It is unifying. And it's a beautiful picture also of what's to come. Remember those men I talked about in the beginning? They said it was hard to imagine a future because they couldn't remember the past. Now, walk to, as a matter of fact, none of you have asked me. This is kind of dangerous. I don't know. I've, I've got a can of Prince Albert here. Prince Albert smoking tobacco. This is not an endorsement to smoke. It's bad for your health. And it's full. Uh, right before my dad passed away, he sent this to me. And you may be asking why. Well, I'll tell you why. For all my years growing up, for as long as I can remember, when I would pull into the garage, there would be sitting on my dad's workbench a whole row of Prince Albert cans. They were full of stuff. They were full of uh, hardware, screws and nuts and bolts. And, and when they were moving out of that house, one of the things that hit me right here was those Prince Albert cans. In that garage where my dad taught me how to change oil, how to put the snow tires on, he and I had spent time out there in that garage together. So see, this is much more to me than just a can of smoking tobacco. It's a, it's a little bit of home. You know, communion, it's a little bit of home. And it's the home you're not at yet. And someday my dad and I, we're going to sit down together in heaven, across from each other at a table, and we're going to share a meal together. But until then, you know what? He sent this with a note that said, Chad, he said, just set this out and just think about me every now and then. Christ wants us to think about him. And in the busyness of life, written at a time when there weren't individually printed Bibles, when there weren't stained glass windows to remind you of who Christ was, he said, eat a meal together in my name. That's what we're going to do this morning. Please pray with me. Almighty God, it's an honor to get to share in this meal together. It's an honor to get to have a little bit of home here on earth. God, where you have left something for us to do, an act of love, it's something we share in together, it's something we share with you. Lord, there's a mystery to communion. There's a nourishment of communion. There's a unification that comes with communion. There's a remembrance in communion, God. And there's, there's also a need to examine. Lord, you make us worthy. Bless our time together now. Let us see you in a new way. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.